Hello, and thank you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from Planetary Protection, Guardians of the Galaxy, or Lame Science Party Poopers, by Dr. Jennifer Wadsworth. It was first broadcast live on Thursday, November the 26th, 2020. A video of this, and many of the recordings hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online, are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast, and thank you for your support. Uh, hi everyone, this is weird, isn't it? Um, I hope you have your wine and your beer ready. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in this evening. Um, tonight, I'm going to talk to you about planetary protection. Uh, and um, yeah, what's it all about? Is it worth it? Is it just uh, an excuse for more bureaucracy? Is it a potentially cool title for the next uh, Guardians of the Galaxy film? Um, hopefully you'll be able to have some opinions on that once we're done. So first of all, just a little bit about me. Um, this is me, not on Mars, this is me on Mauna Kea. It's a really cool place if you've never been into astronomy. Um, and I am an astrobiologist. And it was at this point where I would, if I was in a pub with you guys, then ask, who knows anything about astrobiology? Has anyone uh, ever encountered it before? What kind of idea do you have um, about astrobiology? But, um, and I'm assuming there are people out there listening. Uh, I'm assuming there are people who probably have heard of it. I'm assuming there are people that haven't heard of it. So I'm just going to give you a very quick rundown of what astrobiology is. It is um, the... Uh, effort to understand the origin, the evolution, distribution, and the future of life in the universe. And it encompasses basically um, all uh, sub-scientific fields. So you've got uh, biology. I'm originally a biologist. Uh, I work with uh, geologists, chemists, physicists, astronomers, uh, and we all work together in this really kind of broad field uh, under the umbrella of, of astrobiology to try and understand uh, life in the universe and hopefully have some fun whilst we do it. Now, I'm originally from Switzerland, uh, and Switzerland does look exactly like this if you've never been. Uh, and if you've never been, you should definitely go. Maybe not now, uh, but you should at some point. And I studied biology at the University of Basel. Again, really cool place. You should definitely go. Maybe not during the pandemic, though. Um, and after my, my first degree, I uh, then went to the University of Edinburgh and I did my PhD at the UK Centre for Astrobiology under Professor Charles Coquel. And for anyone who has ever been to Edinburgh, I'm sure you can agree with me that that sky is most definitely photoshopped. Um, I completed my PhD about two years ago and I went somewhere that actually does have a blue sky, namely California. I was lucky enough to get a postdoc position as Alice mentioned, um, at NASA, at the Ames Research Center um, in Silicon Valley. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit about what I did during my PhD and what I did during my postdoc um, a bit later on in the talk. So I finished my, my postdoc uh, a few months ago, actually, and I came back to Switzerland, was greeted by Alporns. Nothing much has changed. It's a pretty cool place. And now I'm working at the University of Lucerne, uh, the Biotechnology Space Support Center, which is funded by ESA. Another cool place. Uh, and Lucerne does actually look like that. And the blue sky isn't photoshopped. Okay, but enough about me. Now to planetary protection. Uh, again, at this point, I'd ask, has anyone heard of it before? Does anyone have any kind of idea of what it is? Um, but I can't ask you, so let's press on. 
The official definition of planetary protection is the following. Planetary protection is a guiding principle in the design of an interplanetary mission aiming to prevent biological contamination of both the target celestial body and the Earth in the case of sample return missions. Right. Okay. So what, what exactly is it about? In one word, contamination and the control of contamination on space missions. And by contamination, I mean the contamination of uh, um, surfaces, of instruments, um, of life forms. So we want to prevent life getting onto different planets accidentally. So that's all very good. But uh, who came up with this uh, description of planetary protection? Um, a while ago, uh, the Committee of Space Research was formed, and this is an international uh, non-governmental body uh, that deals in everything space. And they, uh, during the Apollo missions, they thought, well, actually, it's pretty important that we consider planetary protection um, and we're going to come up with this international treaty that everyone can sign and, and be a part of and come up with guidelines for the various uh, space organizations to follow when planning missions, when having to consider um, potential contamination. And in 1967, the Outer Space Treaty was ratified by the US, the UK, and the then USSR. And um, it's still in place and has since been signed and ratified by most countries, except places like North Korea. But who knows, they might come around eventually. And to give you an idea of what kind of things are in these guidelines, Here's a little excerpt. You don't need to read it, but these um, here there are various mission categories stated, and the uh, various uh, guidelines that you might want to follow depending on what kind of mission you have. So if you have a mission, say, uh, of a satellite orbiting the moon, so that's a satellite. It's not going down to the surface. There's no contact between the uh, the actual um, satellite itself and the surface of the moon, and also the moon itself is not considered habitable. Um, to any life. So the kind of restrictions that you're facing or want to consider when planning this mission are a lot less stringent than, say, if you had a rover, so something going down or lander going down onto the surface of a planet like Mars, uh, which is considered to be potentially habitable. There you would have to think about um, many different kinds of things that you would have to uh, put in place to prevent uh, contamination of the planet. So by contamination, what do I mean? Like I said, I'm mostly talking about life forms. Uh, and by life forms, I don't mean elephants or aardvarks. Um, by life forms, uh, we are mostly concerned with uh, microscopic organisms um, or things like fungi. And when we talk about contamination in the context of planetary protection, there are generally two kinds of contamination that we think about. So if we have the Earth and we have a mission going to a planet, in this case it's Mars, we are mostly concerned with something called forward contamination. And by that, we mean the, um, the act of accidentally bringing life from Earth, so microbes from Earth, onto a different planet. Uh, so that's forward contamination. And in the same vein, if we have missions coming back from other planetary bodies back to the Earth, we are mostly concerned with back contamination. So let's have a look at a few examples of these. So when we think of forward contamination, one thing that springs to mind is uh, Mars and the various rovers on Mars. And the Curiosity Mars rover uh, landed on Mars in 2012. 
Um, and it's still roving around as we speak. Uh, and that's an actual picture, a selfie that it took, possibly one of the coolest selfies in the universe, I would argue. Um, and so that is it uh, on the surface of Mars. That's pretty cool. Don't know about you, but that's pretty cool. So when Curiosity landed, uh, we knew that it was not going to be completely sterile. So some parts of it were potentially still um, not covered in, hopefully, but were potentially um, uh, had some some microbes on it. Um, so that's a potential problem, obviously, when thinking about contamination, because there are certain areas of Mars that uh, are potentially habitable to microbes. Uh, you may have heard about the uh, the flowing water on Mars that was detected uh, a few years ago. And by flowing water, we mean, well, scientists meant uh, brine seeps, so very, very salty water that was actually able to be liquid at certain times on the surface of Mars. That would be a pretty cool place to look for life. I agree. However, because of the sensitive nature of that area, um, we would not be allowed to send rovers like Curiosity to those places to explore just in case there is an organism, a contaminant organism on the rover that then gets into the water and then you've contaminated Mars, which is not that great. <clears throat> so one very famous example of uh, potential bat contamination is, of course, the astronauts when they came back from the moon. They were quarantined for three weeks because apparently back then doctors thought Three weeks was enough to know whether you had an alien disease or not. So, But it turns out they were healthy, so that's fine. Um, we weren't expecting to find any life on the moon. However, we didn't know whether there'd be any microorganisms or disease-causing organisms on the moon. So just to be safe, uh, the astronauts were quarantined for three weeks in effectively a glorified uh, caravan. And I've seen the actual place where they were quarantined, and uh, it wasn't that glamorous, but... That's the price you pay, and that's a price worth paying, I think, for going to the moon. So one example of forward and back contamination is the Mars sample return mission, which is actually just kicked off. Um, and it involves sending a rover to Mars. That rover then scoops up some soil, uh, some Martian soil and some rocks, and then brings it back to Earth. And this is international, an international uh, collaborative mission um, uh, by the various space agencies. And NASA launched the first part of that mission in, uh, I think it was August. And you can see a picture of the Perseverance rover here that was launched. Um, and it should be arriving, I believe, uh, beginning of next year on the surface of Mars. And this is the general concept of the mission. So the rover, the Perseverance rover, goes down and it finds some interesting soil and rocks and it stashes it away. A separate rover comes down and takes it back to an ascent vehicle, which then brings it back to Earth. So this is an example, uh, the, the first example of a mission, actually, where we have to consider uh, forward and back contamination. Forward contamination in the form of the rover being sent to Mars, because when we collect the samples uh, on Mars, we would ideally not like to contaminate them with, with Earth-like forms. That would be, that would kind of defeat the point, really. And equally, even though we're not expecting to find any life in the surface or near subsurface of Mars, we have to be particularly careful um, just to be sure when we bring the, the samples back to Earth and when we're, we're um, investigating them scientifically. So you're probably thinking, okay, poor contamination, back contamination, 
that all seems pretty straightforward. What's the catch? What's the dilemma that was so eloquently hinted at in the title of this talk? Well, the, the dilemma comes um, from two opposing priorities in uh, space science, namely that of scientific exploration, which is pretty cool, but also that of scientific preservation. And uh, to get into these two uh, priorities, let's have a look at the Curiosity mission again. So Curiosity was obviously sent to Mars to explore and to ask scientific questions to do geochemical analysis. And even though it wasn't a primary directive of the mission to also keep its eyes peeled for potential signs of life, uh, maybe not uh, living uh, life, current life forms, but maybe signs of past life that might be fossilized in the rock record, which is pretty cool. However, on the other side, you also have the priority of scientific pres uh, preservation. And um, here are some points of the preservation. On the one hand, you have to think about the ethics of contamination. So if you were to bring a rover that had some uh, life forms from Earth to a different planet that was already inhabited by native species, and then you introduced the Earth species to that biosphere, and then the Earth species wiped out the native life, that would be pretty bad, ethically and also scientifically. It would kind of suck. Equally, if you were to introduce um, life forms to a planet where there wasn't any life or wasn't any life yet, that would also be ethically dubious because maybe at some point that planet would uh, would be host to life, but now uh, that those native life forms wouldn't be able to evolve because you've already introduced life. So for those of you familiar with Star Trek, it's kind of similar to the primary directive where um, you were told that you're not allowed to interfere with any primitive uh, cultures or life forms so as to not um, disturb their natural progression. Um, so as always, Star Trek ahead of its time, already pioneers of planetary protection in a way. Um, another point of preservation is you want to um, try not to contaminate certain places because you would actually interfere with your own experiments. If you had a life detection mission, for instance, sent to Mars, and you um, have instruments on board and you detect a life form, uh, obviously that would be potentially the biggest scientific breakthrough ever. Um, you'd want to be pretty sure you, you didn't accidentally take it with you and look at it and you're like, hmm, I didn't know there were E. coli on Mars. Maybe there's a Taco Bell nearby. I'm not sure. You want to be pretty sure that you didn't accidentally take that life form with you and then we're just detecting it with your with your equipment that would be quite embarrassing so those are the two kind of um priorities kind of opposing priorities when thinking about um space missions that kind of uh uh create some friction within the scientific community um and these are particularly relevant at the moment because you have um, the involvement of private industry in space missions as well um via spacex and also um uh blue origin so that's uh, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos helping out the uh, the governments and providing resources um, to to uh, drive forward the exploration of space, which is great. However, you also then have the government saying, "Well, okay, guys, we still have these planetary protection rules in place," and Elon Musk can just be like, "You know what? I'm going to Mars. I'm going to send a red convertible to Mars. Who's going to stop me?" And that's the problem. There are no space Jedi police people 
um, enforcing planetary protection. There's the Space Force, but, well, I actually don't know what they do. Um, they don't enforce planetary protection, I can tell you that. So when the governments ratified the Outer Space Treaty, they were generally agreeing to behave themselves and to take planetary protection into consideration. However, private firms are not beholden to this. So if Elon Musk wants to send people to Mars, which admittedly would be great, um, he wouldn't necessarily have to think about planetary protection. People would tell him to, but he doesn't have to. So in the coming years of especially human exploration, these are um, uh, topics that will hopefully be discussed at length and hopefully we'll find a, a peaceful resolution to them to on the one hand be able to explore, but on the other hand also be mindful of preserving these areas for proper scientific exploration. So I talked a lot about planetary protection, fall contamination, back contamination, Elon Musk, people on Mars, fair enough. But what's the actually actual likelihood of contaminating another planet? And here's where I'd like to talk about some of my research that I did during my PhD. I had the uh, immense pleasure of being able to work on uh, an International Space Station mission, as in I wasn't able to go up, sadly, but I was able to be involved in uh, a mission to the International Space Station. And um, it was through the European Space Agency, and uh, we were able to send up biological samples to the outside of the space, at the space station on a platform called Expos. And you can see that platform um, in the little circle on the slide. So that's an actual picture of the space station and the platform on the outside. And on that platform, you can mount various experiments. And you can see those little squares and circles. And those contain biological and chemical samples that are then exposed to various factors in low Earth orbit that, that are very similar to space and maybe also other planetary surfaces. So you've got factors like very high radiation, high temperature fluctuations, um, very low pressure, vacuum, and uh, you can expose biological or chemical samples to these factors to kind of understand how they would react to um, being in space for a long time or also maybe on other planetary surfaces for a long time. And our samples that were sent up there, we sent some bacterial samples up, were on the outside of the space station for one and a half years, exposed to these really harsh conditions. And they were then taken back down. And then I had the pleasure of analyzing these biological um, samples to see whether they survived, uh, what kind of damage they did they uh, sustain during their time on the ISS. And... Here is a picture of one of the samples. This is a microscopic picture um, of bacteria that have been stained uh, to see which bacteria are alive and which are dead. So the green indicates bacteria that are alive and the red indicates the bacteria that are dead. So there are some back dead bacteria, but as you can see, there are plenty of alive ones. And as a reminder, these have been on the outside of the space station for one and a half years. So that's pretty good going. But perhaps the more interesting part of the uh, the analysis showed us that we didn't just send one species of bacteria into space, we actually sent two. So in this black and white picture, this is a scanning electron microscope picture, you can see the, the larger circular cells, and that was the primary organism that we sent up. But also you can see these smaller rod-like cells, um, which is the second strain of bacteria, and they also survived. 
And we weren't expecting them to survive, um, but they did because we uh, assumed that the larger bacteria actually protected the smaller bacteria from these really harsh conditions in space, uh, which is really cool on the one hand and really terrifying from a planetary protection point of view because if you already have these first these primary bacteria protecting secondary bacteria that aren't really that hardy and shouldn't really even kind of survive these factors, and this was just for one and a half years on the space station, um, you could easily have this situation happening where you had a rover, a Mars rover, for instance, that wasn't properly cleaned and it lands on Mars and you've got these bacteria even protecting other bacteria. And uh, yeah, cool from a science point of view, uncool from a planetary protection point of view. And if you want to read about that, there's the, uh, the details of the paper that we published on it last year. So some more research that I did during my PhD was to look at the likelihood of potential contaminant bacteria surviving the surface and near subsurface of Mars. And generally, Mars is a pretty nasty place. It's cool, but it's nasty. You don't you barely have any atmosphere. You have no magnetosphere. You have very high radiation levels. Uh, it's very cold. Um, the pressure is very low. Generally, not a great place to be if you're an organism from Earth. And what I did was I uh, subjected some bacteria to various chemical uh, reactions that might be happening on the surface of Mars. I'm not going to get into detail, uh, uh, go into detail um, on them right now. However, it showed us, okay, it's a pretty nasty place to be. However, it also showed me that if the bacteria were protected just a little bit, um, for instance, by the, the natural soil and um, dust and rock on the surface of Mars um, from the radiation, actually they could survive a certain extent. And that's assuming that they're on the surface. So if the bacteria actually got underneath the, the soil and were buried and were even better protected from radiation, um, then there is an even higher likelihood that they might be able to survive. Again, scientifically, pretty cool. Planetary protection-wise, pretty scary. Uh, if you want any details of the experiments, you can read about them in these two papers here. Okay, so we know that we need to think about contamination. We know that it is a real threat because uh, many decades of experiments have shown us that uh, bacteria could potentially survive space environments. Um, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? There are solutions. So now I'm going to talk about uh, some of the stuff that I did during my postdoc at NASA. So when you're building uh, a rover, a Mars rover, it's built in a, a clean room environment. And as the name kind of uh, says, it's pretty clean. There are various um, steps in place to try and prevent any kind of dirt or uh, biological contaminants getting into the room where you're building these very, very sensitive um, pieces of equipment. But of course, it's not perfect. So you're going to have to continuously sterilize the surfaces of these instruments that you're building. So on the one hand, we have um, physical sterilization possibilities where you can irradiate um, uh, components uh, to, to sterilize them. Or you can also use uh, heat or pressure or a combination of both to sterilize surfaces. 
You also have a possibility of chemical sterilization because sometimes um, the instruments or the materials are more delicate and you can't actually irradiate them or subject them to heat or pressure. And there your reliance on um, alcohol or detergents or um, acids or other kind of harsh chemicals to try and uh, uh, make sure that there are no contaminants on the surface of the materials. Here's an example of what a clean room looks like. Someone looking very happy uh, or masked up as, uh, yeah, we all are at the moment and something resembling a rover in the background. Okay, that looks pretty clean and cool. What's the problem? The problem is, as uh, Jurassic Park taught us, that life always finds a way. Uh, there are going to be some bacteria in these clean rooms and... As you might have heard from uh, various scary news reports, there are plenty of bacteria that when treated with um, with certain chemicals can become resistant. There are mutations that happen and those mutations allow those bacteria to actually survive being treated with these chemicals. Um, and that's no different in clean rooms as well. You use harsh chemicals and then there's a very high selection pressure on these bacteria to evolve to be able to be resistant uh, to these chemicals they become resistant and then you have to find a new chemical to treat them with and there's this kind of endless uh, cycle an endless arms race of of the bacteria adapting to your your new sterilization techniques and you having to invest and in, in find new sterilization techniques and in fact um, there was a paper I think not too long ago uh, by researchers in JPL so that's a jet propulsion lab which is a part of NASA and that's where um, a lot of the uh, uh, rover assembly actually happens in these clean rooms. And they wrote a paper showing that um, some of the bacteria that were found in clean rooms actually used the chemicals, that the detergents that were being used for, uh, for cleaning. The bacteria used them as a food source, which is pretty ingenious if you're a bacteria. Again, pretty terrifying if you're into plant food protection. Um, and as I mentioned, it's particularly uh, difficult to to stop this cycle uh, when you're not allowed to use radiation or heat or temperature treatments on certain sensitive materials. If you're reliant on the chemicals, you know there's going to be some resistance uh, popping up at some point. Again, great. What are we going to do about it? We have to ask ourselves, what exactly can we control? We have to ask ourselves, can we actually reliably completely sterilize a surface in a clean room? The answer is it's unlikely, especially if we can't use all the tools at our disposal um, to do so because of sensitivity of some equipment. Then we can ask ourselves, can we control what comes into contact uh, with these surfaces? That's more likely. And this is where my postdoc work features. So we've got the physical sterilization possibilities, we've got chemical sterilization. And what I uh, researched during my time at NASA was the potential for biological sterilization. And by that, I mean kind of fighting biology with biology. Here's the general concept. So you have a material, a surface uh, shown here in gray that you want to eventually integrate into, say, a rover or a part of uh, equipment. Uh, and you want it to be sterile, ideally. Hopefully, you'll be able to sterilize some parts of it uh, initially with radiation or with heat and pressure, and they're usually pretty reliable. 
However, when you've got this this material just sitting around in a clean room, eventually things, bacteria, are going to um, uh, make contact with the surface. And to be able to uh, control at least what comes into contact with the surface, what we worked on at NASA as a, as a novel kind of technique of controlling that was to actually deliberately contaminate the surface with biology either in the form of uh, a microbe or a biopolymer. And a biopolymer is just a, a long chain of, um, of molecules that is produced by life, for instance, uh, a protein or a sugar, polysaccharide. So you put a layer of uh, that chosen compound on the surface of the material. And by its sheer presence, it actually prevents other contaminants from getting to the surface so as you can see in the picture the initial layer of little like blue polymers or blue bacteria is actually preventing the green bacteria from getting to the surface it'll just sit on top of the blue bacteria and then when the time comes for integration into the rover or into an instrument you can peel the blue bacteria or the the polymer off using very simple methods um, for instance, with alcohol, and everything else kind of comes off it as well without having to use any kind of harsh chemical sterilization techniques. And I like to call this the tablecloth method. Imagine you're sat down, you've got a nice white table, and you're like, I really fancy some spaghetti bolognese, don't we all? And you're like, oh, but this table's pretty white, and I really don't want to clean it. You know what the sauce does, like it stains everything. You're like, right, okay, I'm going to put the tablecloth down. You eat your spaghetti bolognese, you enjoy it. There's mess everywhere, mess on the tablecloth. Everyone's having a good time. And then you take the tablecloth away and the table is pristine underneath. So in this analogy, the tablecloth is the blue bacteria, that initial layer of polymer or bacteria that you put down on the surface. And the bolognese sauce is the unwanted contaminant uh, that you can then actually uh, prevent from even coming into contact with the surface, i.e. the table. So there are various benefits to this method, and I'll go through them quickly. Um, so on the one hand, as you can imagine, this actually cuts that kind of cycle of continual resistance. Um, so using harsh chemicals, the bacteria then adapt to those harsh chemicals. You're going to have to use another chemical to, to treat the surface because you're not actually using anything that would um, create a very high selective pressure on these bacteria to, um, to accumulate mutations. On the other hand, you also have uh, species that you don't even know are there in the clean room. So when you have a surface and you want to see whether it's clean, the scientists swab the surface with something like a, a cotton bud, and then they put it on a petri dish with, which has food on it, agar with food on it uh, that the bacteria like to eat and then you wait and if you can see the little bacterial colonies growing on this agar in this petri dish then you know ah okay um my surface is not sterile it's not clean which is all very good however there is a massive problem in microbiology with unculturable species so species that if you were to take them from a surface and put them on this this food agar, they're actually not going to grow in lab conditions. And um, fewer than 1% of bacteria that we know of actually grow in lab conditions. So you might be swabbing something 
you might you'll swab your your material and put it on a petri dish and you'll wait for something to grow and nothing grows and you're like okay my surface is clean however there might be something there but it's just not growing in lab conditions so by using the tablecloth technique and having that initial layer of something in between your material that you want to keep clean and other potential contaminants and unculturable species um, you're preventing those unculturable species from even coming into contact with the with the material. And when you peel that initial layer off, you're taking everything with it. So that's a, a kind of a real key benefit to this um, this technique. Also, there's plenty of room for uh, bioengineering of the polymer that you use or the bacteria that you use for the initial layer. You can make it more or less sensitive so to certain sterilization techniques. And critically, you can also also tag it. Um, you can molecularly tag uh, the bacteria or the, the the biopolymer that you use. And this would be important if, for instance, you were to use this technique and take the tablecloth away, so to speak. However, there are still bits of tablecloth on the on the rover, so there might still be some protein or some sugars from the bacteria or from the biopolymer on the rover you then go to mars you've got your life detection equipment um and then you detect a protein or you detect a sugar and you want to be pretty sure uh whether you accidentally took that with you or not and if you have these little integrated molecular tags you are then able to say ah no my fault yeah this is actually something that we took with us at least we can then rule out that this is uh native to for instance mars so those are some of the benefits to, to this technique. And I talked a lot about clean rooms um, as a and these are classed as confined artificial habitats. So habitats where, so rooms that where things live, uh, microbes live, um, and they're confined. So there's no um, there's no uh, access to the, the the kind of the outdoors. There's no um, flow of material coming in and out of these of these spaces and they're also artificially built and these are spaces that where humans really want to try and control what kind of microorganisms are um are in there so the clean rooms um are one example of it to keep with the space theme the international space station is actually also a confined artificial habitat and there you also want to try and control what kind of microorganisms on board because you have humans on board it's not a sterile environment. It's never going to be sterile if humans are around. However, you also want to control for um, pathogenic bacteria, so disease-causing bacteria. You don't want too many of them floating around. Or any bacteria that might form biofilms, films that kind of get into the various uh, components uh, or machinery and might damage them. So there, there's also a real need um, uh, to try and control the environment and what kind of microbes are in there. And now closer to Earth, of course, uh, another confined artificial um, habitat where we want to try and control what kind of microorganisms live there um, are spaces like in hospitals. You've got operating theatres, you've got intensive care units and places where um, you know, patients are recovering, where you really want to uh, prevent any unnecessary contact with, uh, with bacteria. Um, and I'm sure you've you've heard in the news that uh, there are plenty of of uh, infections that you actually get from hospitals because of just the accumulation of um, 
of microorganisms that are resistant to chemical cleaning, uh, maybe also chemicals that have certain active drug components in them, they just become resistant to them because uh, people are forever exposing them to to these uh, harsh chemicals. And so there's a lot of selection pressure on the bacteria to um, to adapt and uh, have mutations. Uh, and then you get these multiple resistances, which are a real problem in hospitals. And so here you could also maybe think about um, applying the, the tablecloth method. So actually introducing bacteria um, into certain areas of hospitals, um, good bacteria, non-pathogenic non bacteria, and putting them on surfaces, for instance, maybe door handles or um, places where there's a um, high traffic of, of humans going in and out. And by the sheer presence of those non-harmful bacteria on the surfaces, they're actually um, uh, not allowing the, the nasty pathogenic bacteria to even um, go there in the first place. They're actually taking up that potential habitat so the, the pathogenic bacteria don't have anywhere to go. And there was actually a study done in Germany a few years ago where um, healthy bacteria were introduced um, in areas where patients were recovering and the actual number of infections that were um, acquired at hospital uh, went down. So there is some uh, evidence that this actually might work, which is pretty cool. So, planetary protection. We've gone through a lot. It's been a bit of a journey. I hope you guys are still awake, still out there, haven't passed out yet. Um, what have we covered? Forward and back contamination. There are different kinds of contamination that we have to think about depending on our kind of mission, whether we're coming from Earth or coming from a different planet back to Earth. And there are guidelines, planetary protection guidelines, that can help us when we're designing missions uh, to take certain things into consideration. Is it just a satellite? Is it a lander? Are we going somewhere where we know that there might be potential habitats that we could contaminate and we have to be extra careful? And it's really on us to be extra careful because there are no space Jedi police enforcing planetary protection uh, guidelines. Um, and this is a particular problem when we're thinking about private industry as well. On the one hand, it's really cool that Elon Musk wants to send people to Mars. But on the other hand, we also don't want contaminants everywhere. And you know what people are like. Um, anywhere people go, there's going to be a trail of uh, contamination this is obviously a, yeah, a problem with Mars because we definitely want to go to Mars. Um, but we really want to make sure that our equipment is as clean as possible when we send it there. Because uh, decades of scientific research have shown that there are some microorganisms on Earth that could survive um, space-like environments. Um, so we're not just uh, panicking for no reason. However, all is not lost. We have some cards up our sleeve there might be some methods that we can use um, when uh, building our equipment, our exploration equipment, that uh, we can use to try and at least minimize the risk of taking other life forms to other planets. So I can't see your faces. I'm hoping that this is not the expression you're wearing. Um, thanks so much for listening. I hope I gave you some kind of insight into planetary protection. Um, Hopefully you'll have some ideas and questions that we can talk about in the Q&A session afterwards. Is it cool? Is it a waste of time? Could it potentially be a title for the next Guardians of the Galaxy film? Let's discuss it. Thanks for listening, guys.
Hello, welcome back everybody. Um, thank you very much for sticking around with us to do the Q&A and I'll uh, bring uh, Dr. Jennifer Wadsworth back onto the screen for you and we'll start asking some questions to her that you've been putting through to us on Slido. Um, I know Jennifer wants to start by addressing her, her bookcase, so I'm going to give her <laughs> a chance to address the very lovely bookcase. We can see all of it. Thank you. Yes, I can Ikea's best. So in my defense, I'm not illiterate. Well, I don't think so. Um, I've just moved house and uh, uh, I've just moved uh, from America as well. So all of my books, wow. basically, uh, barring um, a couple there and a suspicious a looking beer bottle. Um, <laughs> yeah, I do own books. They're not here yet, though. They will be, though. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, you're you're clearly anticipating plenty of books. You have got three bookcases stacked up there. <laughs> yeah, you can't see the rest of the room as well. My, yeah, it's going to be my little library. So, yeah, don't worry, guys. I do read. There are books. Excellent. Okay. Um, I am going to start with a question from uh, Eggman, who asked: uh, Astronauts have been known to smuggle items with them. For example, John Young's corned beef sandwich. How much of an additional risk is human error or stupidity? Well, uh, massive because uh, because humans basically <laughs> we know what we're like. We can't be trusted. We can't be trusted. Um, that's why it's always particularly hard when you're thinking about manned missions. I think we had also a question about uh, you know uh, is it inevitable if we have a manned mission to Mars, for instance, that we are going to contaminate places? And the answer is yes. You know it will be imperfect, but it's always it's already imperfect with the robotic missions. So that's just something that we're going to have to take into consideration. And uh, when I mentioned the kind of the the push and pull between the you know the the objective for like science um, scientific exploration and also the kind of preservation, we need to think about both. It's not just one or the other. So it's going to be a compromise, sadly. Um, otherwise, we'll just you know not go anywhere, which is not As, really yeah, what all of scientific progression is a compromise. <laughs> exactly. So it absolutely is a risk. Although corned beef sandwich, good choice, I have to say. So. And <laughs> um, we've got a question from Gre the appropriately named Gray the Earthling. Um, who asked, what do you make of the discovery of phosphine on Venus? So it's a very cool discovery. Uh, for those of you who didn't um, hear about it, uh, I think it was last month, um, there was a study that uh, that detected a particular molecule in the atmosphere of Venus. And it was exciting for astrobiologists because this molecule is only known to be produced by life on Earth. And so whilst the scientists who published the paper were actually very careful at pointing out this doesn't necessarily mean that we found life on Venus, at the moment, we can't explain, to the best of our knowledge, how it was produced it in, in the atmosphere. And just because we know that on Earth it's produced by life, everyone was just like, it's, it's life. But um, we haven't detected life forms uh, on Venus. And uh, I think there's also been a few... Uh, a scientist who have kind of thrown in the gauntlet and said, actually, you haven't even detected phosphine. Um, also, the Venusian atmosphere is ex is a very extreme place, extreme temperatures, extreme chemistry going on. Um, probably the most likely explanation is it's just some kind of chemical reaction that we don't know about yet that's producing the phosphine. So life isn't ruled out, but um, it's very unlikely. Occam's razor. So that's, <laughs> and also, you know, Carl Sagan said that uh, you know, for for extraordinary claims, you need extraordinary uh, um, uh, evidence. So, whilst it's cool, 
we need to investigate it and assume and that it's not like yeah. exactly <laughs> but it's cool and it's cool to you know talk about these discoveries in the context of astrobiology and also get the word out there and get it to the, you know, the general public that actually these kinds of missions and, and uh, research is going on and uh, even if we don't find life that's also a really interesting thing um, and I guess it's an interesting example of how, why you need interdisciplinary science. You need all your scientists who, who you need to consider things from every angle to figure out who's who's going to have the answer on something. Because if somebody finds phosphine and says, well, I only know of, of living things that make it, you, you might just want to talk to your chemist about it. Exactly. And that's the kind of the, you know, it's like a double edged sword with with uh, with astrobiology. On the one hand, it's an amazing uh, um, field to be active in because it's so interdisciplinary. However, it's also quite hard to kind of uh, make sure that you have the kind of general understanding or that you're talking to your other colleagues in the different disciplines to kind of try and get a holistic understanding. But um, in general, that's, yeah, it's it's one of the great things about astrobiology, I think. Fantastic. Um, Paul, aka Pixicule, asked, uh, what are the chances that alien civilizations are hiding from us because they also maintain planetary protection? Yeah, I mean, you know, Star Trek, man, maybe they just don't think that we're advanced enough yet, which is, you know, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, to, yeah, it definitely feels like that in 2020, doesn't yes, it? especially 2020. Also, you know, a horrible pandemic. They're like, oh, no. Um, yeah, it's definitely a possibility. You know, I can't really prove it otherwise. But, uh, yeah, I could definitely see why alien <laughs> civilizations would consider us, um, yeah, not, yeah, prim too primitive still to kind of... <laughs> contact yeah Igor asked are there any weird but elaborate SCP style plans in case of accidental backward contamination like a flamethrower labeled in case of the thing use this um yeah I've actually yeah I brought the one from NASA that we had no um, <laughs> that's on the other side of the uh, the shelves that you can't see um I imagine Elon Musk has a, a flamethrower in case of that uh the 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 kind of contingency plans for the the sample return mission from Mars are actually still being discussed. There are um, uh, certain things that are already in place. I don't think any flamethrowers are involved yet. But I was at a conference last year where you know these plans are still very much being discussed and uh, kind of hashed out between scientists. Um, yeah, so I don't think they're in like um, they're not in stone yet, but they're being discussed. <laughs> slightly not asked a not a question that we've been asked here but a question I'm going to ask you as somebody who who works in science myself mm. and knows uh just how many mistakes are made um is that is that something that also happens at NASA do you also have scientists that make a lot of very silly mistakes occasionally no or are they, are they a higher grade of people <laughs> <laughs> no we never make mistakes at NASA. yes there are mistakes <laughs> of course uh but uh, the important thing is to admit to to them and then you can and you, know, you can remedy them absolutely exactly then you have the flamethrower just in case <laughs> fantastic um andrew h asked how much would the radiation in interplanetary space sterilize any spacecraft that's uh that's a really good question um and that's also a, a planetary protection mechanism that you can use to kind of ensure that the uh at least the outside of the spacecraft or the kind of certain um uh, parts of the spacecraft are you're, you're quite sure that they're very sterile because um, especially, was it interplanetary or interstellar? Interplanetary. 
Interplanetary, yeah. Depending on how long it takes the mission to get to somewhere, um, you're exposed to a lot of radiation. Or if you're going through any of like, the radiation belts, like the Van Allen belts, um, you know, you'd be getting more radiation on the surface uh, on kind of certain parts of the the the, um, the rocket or, or the the mission. Um, however, it's it's not enough to rely on just that for sterilizing your your equipment. You also need to sterilize stuff already on Earth or have it in a very you know hopefully very clean condition because depending on the kind of material that you make things out of and how encased they are and encapsulated you know you might be able to protect them from radiation uh, for a certain period of time so that when the rover is then deployed on the surface of a planet or a moon or something um, it might not have got the same amount of radiation as other parts of the spacecraft so you can't solely rely on that to then sterilize it but it is um, something that you starting point integrates into the planetary protection uh, concept yeah uh, matt reynolds asked if you could design your ideal exploration mission where would you have it go and what would it look for oh um i would say i would say europa so the the um uh one of jupiter's moons or enceladus uh one of saturn's moons um they're icy moons and we've detected organics coming out of the the kind of icy plumes. Um, I think sending a kind of submarine somehow to those places. I'm pretty sure there's actually already a sci-fi movie. Is it Europa Report or something that does that? I think that would be particularly cool because um, to the best of my knowledge, there are no lander missions going to the icy moons. There's a Europa Clipper, um, which is going to um, orbit Europa um, which is going to be very cool, that, um, but no landers. So I think I'd, yeah, I'd like a lander, a kind of little submarine going down into the to the the ocean underneath the ice to see if there's any like uh, space krakens. Sounds great. Um, I've got a question from not Randall Munro, uh, who said, "Could tardigrades survive in similar conditions? Uh, an eighteen month year in space, mostly outside." Yeah, tardigrades. Um, I thought about mentioning them in the talk, uh, but I figured they'd come up in the Q and A. Um, they are so. For those of you who don't know, they're um, very small microscopic animals, and they are known to be particularly resistant to very, very high doses of radiation. And they can go into um, a, a state, a kind of stasis, where um, they're not really they're not dead, but they're not actively metabolizing. And they're kind of like in um, in hibernation, and they're particularly resilient to, to like the the harshest um, factors that we can think of. Um, so they could they, they could potentially survive. Um, I don't know if any of you uh, heard about the uh, the interesting um, mission that was sent. I think it was it wasn't a scientific mission. It was more of like a I think it was even a crowdfunding mission. I think it was was it Israeli? I'm not sure, but they sent. Uh, a probe to the moon and it crashed into the moon and uh, there were tardigrades on board and so now everyone's like oh the, the moon's <laughs> contaminated with tardigrades probably not although that would be a really fun you know thing to imagine um, you know just because they survive doesn't mean that they'll thrive and especially if they're in this kind of stasis state They'll just stay like that. <laughs> They'll just kind of stay like that until they come into more favorable conditions. And in fact, bacteria do the same. They can go into like a spore-like um, uh, like stasis 
and there they're also particularly resilient to to things like um, high radiation um, doses. So they might, yeah, they might survive. In fact, I mean, I'm not an expert on tardigrades. I'm sure they've been exposed on the outside of the space station to to various conditions and most likely survived. Yeah, they're pretty cool. Another question from Gravy Earthling, who asked, do you think it's likely that life has uh, naturally spread between planets via meteoroids, etc.? Um, it's not uh, it's it's not impossible, especially if you have planets that are very close to each other. So like Earth and Mars, we have um, examples of uh, Martian meteorites that have actually traveled from Mars to Earth. So we haven't brought them back. They've just naturally come off the planet through impact and asteroid impact, probably. And, um, you know, survived entry through Earth's atmosphere and have landed here. Um, you'd have to have uh, an organism that could survive impact and you could have to survive uh, re-entry. Um, it's not impossible, especially yeah, with, with planets that are so close, as close, relatively close as Earth and Mars. Of course, if you've got planets that are, that are very, very far away, then it's maybe more unlikely. Uh, another question from Matt Reynolds, who asked, are there any widely advocated mission proposals that you think are simply too co contamination risky to do, regardless of the budget to mitigate this? Well, um, kind of like we we touched on earlier, any any manned mission, basically. And that's not to say that I don't think there should be manned missions. I think there should be. But those kinds of missions, uh, yeah, anything that involves human humans, just because we are inherently covered in bacteria, uh, and also the you know the factor of human error. Um, any kind of human missions will uh, be so risky that you will have contamination. But as I said before, you we kind of probably already have contamination issues even with the rovers and the landers. So it's just this kind of fine balance between um, uh, kind of weighing the options of okay, what do we uh, what do we stand to gain from the scientific exploration? What kind of amazing questions can we answer versus you know how how likely is it that we'll will contaminate how badly will, will how bad will the contamination be what can we do to try and mitigate this well it's going to be imperfect whatever we do but i think the man missions pose the most um, the most problems i'd say with regard to Biggest that yeah. risk. um sort of relatedly we've got a question from scott who asked do you have any comment on elon musk throwing his old car at mars do you think his planetary protection methods were sufficient and i guess relatedly do you think we were gaining enough from that for it to be worth the risk i mean i gotta say i watched the launch and it was pretty cool i mean <laughs> it was pretty cool reds convertible you know in space don't panic um, you know, it was a cool stunt, but I think, you know, if it did crash into Mars, okay, what's the likelihood of bacteria being on it, having survived, you know, exposure to, to space radiation and then re-entry or entry into the, into the Martian atmosphere? It's pretty low, um, but it's not zero. And yeah, that would be pretty uncool. Also just crashing a car into Mars. I mean... Oh, it's a shame cool, for the though, car, you know. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> just, just anything, say you crash like, your car into Mars is quite. If cool. anything, you should send it like to crash into the sun or something like that. That would be pretty cool. And then you know, there's zero uh, planetary protection risk, so he should do that next time. Crash into <laughs> Aim the, sun. the sun. Yeah, yeah. So that is, that is your, t your your tip. Elon Musk is allowed yeah. to throw things into space as long as it's at the sun. Okay, great. So I approve it. <laughs> um, we've got an anonymous question. Somebody asked, um, could there be surviving bacteria in the poo bags left by astronauts on the moon or does the lack of atmosphere make that impossible? Ooh. Um, I would say 
it would be very unlikely that that bacteria, the bacteria that were there, would survive um, a combination of you know the the high the the in, intense um, freeze thawing cycles, so the high temperature fluctuations, the radiation, the the lack of atmosphere. Um, yeah, under I think, a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah, or no pressure rather. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I doubt it, but I, I appreciate the poo question. <laughs> I, I have been joined by a dog. I, am, I do apologise for that. Dog can go away. Um, so uh, we've got a question from Cleo who asked, if we found recognisable microbes on Mars, how would we know if they were from contamination or were native? That's a really good question. Um, we, uh, if it's not obvious that they're not uh, foreign, they're not from Earth in some way. So say they have, they don't have DNA, but some kind of different, you know, molecule for recording information or that the structure is so inherently alien or foreign that we, would, we wouldn't be able to say, um, oh, you know, it's from Earth. Um, what we could do is uh, maybe sequence it. If it has something like you know, DNA, we could then sequence it. And then if it very, very closely matches you know, especially if it's known contaminant matches known contaminants, certain bacteria that we, we can know assume we can't. it was probably us. <laughs> yeah, but this is why, you know, but you can't, you know, hundred percent rule it out. You'll probably have people being like, oh no, you know, those E. coli are definitely not from uh um from Earth. They're from like, you know, the Mars Taco Bell. Not to Taco Bell bash, <laughs> but you know. Um uh yeah, so this is why we really want to be careful and uh you, if we do use, you know, the tablecloth technique that I that I outlined beforehand, we want to be able to like tag what we take there. So we, if something like that were to happen, we could at least say, okay, we did detect something, but it's ninety nine percent sure. We're ninety nine percent sure that it's like from Earth because we took it there. Yeah. Um, we've we've got loads of questions from Grey the Earthling tonight. We've got another question: drilling into ice covered ocean moons like Europa and 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 I can't pronounce this and Saladus. Yeah, uh, looking nice. for life. Should we or should we not? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, you've already we said you don't want to do that. <laughs> yes, we should. Uh, um, uh, another question from Anonymous. Do manned missions present unaddressable risks of contamination, even if the suits are sterile? Um, one disemboweled astronaut would be a disaster. <laughs> I mean, it would be it would be a disaster for many reasons, I suppose, yeah. Um, yeah, again, and we kind of touched on that, anything to do with like manned missions, you're going to have some kind of contamination issue, like even on the, the, the lunar missions, um, obviously the astronauts were, were suited up, uh, to go outside, but when they took the suits inside, um, there were lots of, there was lots of lunar dust, which is very, very fine, um, in the kind of living quarters and, uh, you know, got into instruments, you don't want the, that, that getting into your lungs, so you'd have to have, um, you know, a careful kind of uh, system whereby you could kind of decontaminate your suit as you came in to the living area and also as you went out again so as to not bring anything. So it's kind of like a mini forward uh, and back contamination um, kind of issue there. So anything to do with uh, humans going anywhere, we're going to we're gonna encounter some, some contamination problems, yeah. Which we're all learning all about at the minute as we uh, decontaminate, as we come into our homes from, from an outside of the COVID world. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Because, you know, it's natural that, you know, we, we evolved in a, in a world which is full of life and, you know, we need organisms, you know, in our body, on our body to help us even, you know, survive. It, we're, not, we're not made to be in sterile environments. 
Um, but on the other hand, that poses, yeah, other problems. That means we're carrying them everywhere all the time with us. Basically, yeah. <laughs> Never um, alone. Not Mandel, Randall Monroe asks, have you learned more about orbital mechanics from Kerbal Space Programme or working at NASA? Uh, <laughs> Kerbal, definitely. <laughs> um, another anonymous question. Are there parallels between early archaeology, which are now viewed by modern day archaeologists as vandalism for destroying stratigraphy and context? Um yeah, I suppose you could look at it that way. But on the other hand, if you even, even the early archaeologists, uh, you know, wanted to find stuff out and then you had later archaeologists building on that, you know, shoulders and giants. So it's a risk you, you run if you have more primitive techniques of just like, you know, bashing rock and seeing the, you know, the, the geologic um, history in the rock. And if that's the only way um, to do it and to, to find more things out, then you got to start it, somewhere. Exactly. It's the risk of, you know, yeah, scientific exploration and then also preservation, because if you want to preserve everything, then you never find anything out. So it's it's not ideal. And, you know, you can have non-invasive ways of um, using spectroscopy, for instance, for for uh, analyzing various you know, kinds of rocks and, and compounds um, and to scan that. But uh, sometimes you're going to have to use destructive methods as well. So, it's, it's again, it's a balance. Um, we've got a question from Andrew. We've got lots of questions about humans because I think people have registered that this is the issue. Uh, Andrew asks, are humans the most significant contaminant for other planets and how do we guard against us? And I guess that's on two levels. That's either are we going to yeah. start colonising these planets and destroying them as we are want to do or, yeah. or are we going to carry stuff that damages them, which we've talked about a lot already, I guess. Um, I would say... Yes. So on the one hand, maybe humans are the biggest risk factor, but not so. Yes. On the one hand, maybe because we we actually actively destroy places. That doesn't mean that we have to do that. We can change our ways. But also, on the other hand, just because of the the microorganisms that are that are associated with us and that we actually need, you know, and also like if we want to survive, we have to grow plants and plants need microorganisms associated with them to even be able to grow. So we're going to have to have. Um, the presence of of microbes um, if we go anywhere. Um, so, but yeah, it's a yeah two tier question, very deep. Um, yeah, it's probably we're probably the biggest the biggest problem. But again, that doesn't necessarily mean that you know all is lost, and we have ways of of containing um, potential contamination um, uh, issues. So, it's going to be imperfect. And I guess, again, sort of relatedly, um, Anonymous asked, what do you think of Elon Musk wanting to colonise Mars even before we know if there is any life alive there? Yeah. So, again, it's the it's the kind of tug of the exploration versus the pres uh, preservation. I think, you know, it would be great to see humans on Mars. Um, but it would also be great to see Elon uh, think about planetary protection and not just dump bags of uh, astronaut poo. Um, near places where you might have, you know, liquid water, albeit <laughs> salty water. Um, so, yeah, I think it's something that we should do. There's only so much we can do with robots, um, especially if there's a place like Mars, which is relatively close by, that humans actually could get to, you know, with hu within human lifetime. And uh, we should just be careful and have, you know, uh, maybe a certain little mapped out area where, you know, that's where the humans live. And any time we go out of that, we have to be like particularly careful to not accidentally contaminate any uh, 
any places, whether there's native life or even if there's not. <laughs> my dog just sniffed at my microphone. So if you if, if the audience suddenly heard a random sound, that's what that was. Um, John Connor asked, what about natural contamination? Rocks from Mars landing in Antarctica, fungal spores leave, uh, leaving top of the atmosphere and being blown along by the solar wind? Yeah, so yeah, that happens and we can't really control that, sadly. Um, but uh, I guess you could argue maybe that's just, yeah, yeah, natural contamination and who are we to kind of interfere with that, that yeah. or even try and control that, yeah. Um, Anonymous asks, can you talk a bit about the Martian methane? Uh, when will we have a better idea of the source or if it's biological? Yes, yeah, so that's the ongoing problem. Um, for those of you who aren't too familiar with it, um, methane, uh, which is uh, a gas um, and not largely produced by life um, on Earth, basically farts, um, uh, was detected in the Martian atmosphere. Um, and it wasn't linked to any kind of like seasonal variation that scientists could could um, uh, could tell. And uh, yeah, there didn't seem to be any obvious patterns that were linked to geological processes or atmospheric pro processes. And so people thought, uh, you know, that maybe uh, life forms were, were producing it because we tightly associate methane with, with life on Earth. Um, I don't think there's been any developments on that recently. Again, this is not really my area of expertise, but I know that uh, various space agencies have um, orbiters, satellites uh, orbiting Mars and the uh, trying to get um, ever more precise um, measurements of exactly how much methane is being released into the atmosphere and, uh, and what might be causing it. But um, I don't think um, people are jumping to the conclusion that it's life yet. We haven't ruled it out, obviously, but I think people are still under the impression that it's a geological process that's happening. Cool. Um, <laughs> sorry. We've been having questions for me to show the dog who was... Who, who looks like this, everybody. Um, he just decided to scratch his face while I was trying to read your question. He's he's starting to get very frustrated by my my, my not paying enough attention to him. Um, so uh, Anonymous asked, um, do uh, what is the best protection? What is the protection in the Bennu mission? How are we kept safe from weird bacteria? It's 2020, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, in 2020, it's viruses that are a problem, not the bacteria. So, uh, yeah, uh, the sample from Bennu, so for, again, for people who aren't familiar with it, this is a, a NASA mission that went to, um, I believe, was it an asteroid or a comet? Um, I think it was an asteroid and took a sample, basically just like went down, nom, took a sample and just, a um, just a, yeah, just nommed a bit of the surface <laughs> and is taking, taking it back to Earth for analysis. Um I'm not overly familiar with what they have in place with regards to planetary protection on that, as in I'm sure that they sterilized their um, their equipment as much as possible before they sent it there. And, and also, it, you know, it was exposed to a lot of radiation on its flight to Bennu. Um, yeah, I'm actually, I, honestly, I have to put my hand up, I don't know exactly what uh, what things they have in place, but I'm sure they do, because also they don't want to accidentally contaminate it with Earth stuff. Um, so I'm sure it's got, you know, it's in a capsule, in a capsule, in a capsule that'll be opened up in like a clean room under, a, you know, uh, in an area where there's like a big filter and everyone will be suited and booted and masked and gloved and everything. So I wouldn't worry too much. 
yeah, I'd I focus more on the current pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely currently more pressing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Matt Reynolds asked, with chemical cleaning, are mixed cleaner chemicals used to kill microbes multiple ways simultaneously to reduce the opportunities for evolution or resistance? Yes, evolution of resistance, sorry. Yes, absolutely. And also, you know, uh, a mix of physical and chemical um, um, sterilization. But um, so we have we have pretty good ways of sterilizing certain things. However, as I mentioned in the talk, it's when you have very sensitive equipment that you actually can't put in an autoclave. So that's like a, basically essentially a pressure cooker. So you're using heat and pressure to sterilize uh, that material or irradiate it for whatever reason. It's sensitive, especially like life detection equipment um, is particularly sensitive. So um, back in during like the Apollo missions and earlier missions, you were dealing with uh, materials that generally could be pretty well sterilized using physical techniques. However, with the, um, the development of more complex technology, uh, we are increasingly faced with problems of sterilization where you can ha we have to rely on the chemical sterilization. That's where the contamination problems really kick in. Excellent. Um, I'm going to ask two more questions. Um, so uh, Deshimator asked, do you think that alien life would be so radically different to our own that we'd look at it and realize immediately that it's alien and in what ways? Um, I don't know. So on the one hand, you could maybe argue that if, if alien life were uh, constrained by the same physical factors that we were, that we are. So for instance, it would need some kind of sensory system to make uh, to make sense of the world around it. So maybe you would have some kind of optical inputs uh, like eyes and some kind of um, tactile um, uh, uh, organs or something to kind of sense the world around it. So on the one hand, you could maybe argue that you, yeah, we'd still be able, we'd be able to recognize it as alien, but we'd probably be able to recognize certain kind of similarities because we're subject to the same, the same Evolutionary universe. Evolutionary pressures. Exactly. And, you know, you have to be able to maybe, you know, sense your surroundings to then adapt and whatever, even if it did look quite different. Um, on the other hand, who knows, you know, who might say that it can't just be like a, a gas cloud and somehow conscious. I think there's a Futurama <laughs> episode on that. Um, but yeah. Excellent. And I'm going to ask, the last question is from Anonymous who asked, the best Guardians of the Galaxy movie, one or two? One? Come on. I mean, is that even a question? Also, the soundtrack? I mean, The soundtrack is pretty amazing in that film. Top notch. I mean, the soundtrack's pretty good in two as well, but one, definitely. <laughs> okay, so hopefully all our audience agree with you there and we're not suddenly getting lots of shouting in the chat. Um, That's the good thing about being online. You can't hear it. <laughs> you can't hear them shouting at you, which is great. <laughs> so I think that uh, wraps up our evening tonight. Thank you very much, uh, Jennifer, for such a fantastic talk and answering all of our questions. Thanks um, for having me. Oh, thank you. Um, thanks, everybody, for joining us, and we'll see you next time. That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more sceptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook, follow at SITP on Twitter, or head to our website at sitp.online, where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thula Bora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening.